The opinions expressed in this podcast are those of the participants, not of Reuters News. Welcome to The Views Room, a weekly conversation among breaking news columnists about big numbers, crunchy deals and nasty spats. I'm Anthony Curry and I'm here with my colleague Jennifer Sabre. Hi Jen. Hello. Later on the show, we're going to talk about two banks, Goldman Sachs and its new executives, and also Wells Fargo is back in the news again, and its hubris is catching up with it. Before we go there, though, we're heading back to Washington via Texas and via Chicago. We're bringing in, (laughs) unfortunately, for the very last time, uh, I would say our very own Kevin Allison, uh, but unfortunately, Kevin, you're deserting us. For pastures new, but before you do, you're going to chat to us about this week's news that Rex Tillerson is President-elect Donald Trump's pick to be Secretary of State. The Exxon CEO, who spent most of his career at the company, going into the public sector to try and turn around America's relations with the rest of the world. So, Kevin, for this final time, what does this all mean? Let's start first with what it means for America's foreign policy? Well, Tillerson's a kind of fascinating choice for Secretary of State. He has never worked in government. He came up through the Exxon ranks. He's been CEO for 10 years. But the interesting thing about it is, even if he's never had a federal job or even a local government job, being the CEO of Exxon is a little bit like running your own foreign policy. The oil major does business in dozens of countries, and he's had to forge relationships with leaders in those countries in order to do business there. So although he doesn't have direct experience in government, he does have relevant experience to the challenge of being Secretary of State. That's that's in the positive column. How broad would you say that is? So I think in terms of bilateral and even to some extent some, some multilateral deals, that may work. And I think that very much fits in with some old-style foreign policy ideas of you know, foreign policy is just an extension of economic policy. You want to get your name out there, you want to get your goods out there, and you want to import things or sell things at the prices that suit you. I get that. But foreign policy has become much more about that. I mean, how does he fit into these more, I don't know, I'm not sure how you describe it, the, 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 the less obvious traditional foreign policy parts? The line that I would draw is between the transactional bilateral kind of foreign policy that Donald Trump seems to support, at least, you know, judging by his comments about things like making America's NATO allies pay up for for mutual defense, effectively turning NATO into kind of a protection racket. That's the diplomacy that Donald Trump seems to favor. And I think that that's the kind of diplomacy that a business person CEO would be quite good at, to be honest. Um, you know, the job of an oil CEO is to go in and make sure that the, their company has a license to operate in a country. Exxon, in many cases, is is a more important force than than the United States government in some of these countries where they might be poor countries that have, you know, they don't have much, but what they do have is oil. And uh, those are countries where Exxon tends to, to be able to form partnerships and get the oil out and so on. The, the line I would draw is between a kind of tr- bilateral or transactional foreign policy that Donald Trump seems to favor, judging by his comments about things like making America's NATO allies pay up for mutual defense, and then the more multilateral, consensus-driven foreign policy, things like climate change or the Iran nuclear deal, or like you say, Aleppo, these sort of more difficult problems where you have to build consensus among many nations to tackle, solve really 
thorny problems that don't necessarily have a business outcome. I think that's where, where he might be a little bit weaker. What about his business record, Kevin? Um, we, Donald Trump talks a lot about wanting to do good deals and getting in the best businessman. Exxon's market cap over the period uh, that Tillerson was in charge over a decade barely budged. It's up, I think, today, maybe less than 10 percent. And there was one big deal they did in fracking that was too late and too rich. So That's right. So 10 years ago, when Rex Tillerson took over at Exxon, it was worth $350 billion. Today, it's worth about $380 billion. Now, that is only about a 10% move in the market cap. Other oil companies have, have had their market cap grow more. Royal Dutch Shell, for example, has gone from about $150 billion to $200 billion. Now, now, that was partly because Royal Dutch Shell did a massive acquisition. Uh, as you say, Exxon did an acquisition back in 2009 of XTO Energy to kind of get in on the shale boom. A lot of people think it overpaid. It got in a bit late. Um, I think that Exxon's you know, struggle to grow its market cap reflects a little bit uh, oil majors' tough environment generally. They've been having to go either to the shale patch where they haven't had the, the first mover advantage that a lot of these smaller producers who were doing shale for a long time before they were did, or they have had to go into things like deep water, the Arctic, oil sands, and so on, things that are pretty expensive and difficult to pull off which have been waylaid by the low prices that we've had the last two years. So as, as a businessman, I think Tillerson is widely respected in the industry. Exxon has always been and will probably continue to be the best run oil company. But yes, it's, it's not exactly like Exxon has been knocking the lights out during the 10 years that he's been in charge. So, Kevin, I want to go back to something you said earlier about Tillerson's kind of experience, because in some of these smaller countries, the only thing they have is oil. And so Exxon or, you know, the oil producers are kind of the big guys in town. That said, it's like it's big oil and he's of big oil. Mm -hmm. Is there any sort of, you know, broader concerns about that industry, which frankly, um, a lot of people have very strong feelings about one way or the other, including, you know, climate change and, and what's happening with, you know, offshore drilling. You mentioned the Arctic, for example. How do you square that circle or how, how do you think he squares that circle? And is that is that too much baggage for him to kind of, you know, go out and be like the United States chief diplomat? Yeah, I mean, d does he represent big oil? I think I think it is a concern. I mean, you've seen this with uh, some other appointments to Trump's cabinet, people from Goldman Sachs in, in, in the Treasury slot and elsewhere. I think there is a sense that Trump is assembling a kind of cabinet of CEOs, a lot of them billionaires. Um, don't think Tillerson's a billionaire. The last I checked, he'd held about $160 million worth of Exxon stock. But definitely this sense that you know, we're entering a period in which what's what's good for America's big business is is good for America and good for the, the cabinet secretaries. And so I, I think that is a potential conflict. I mean, even if Tillerson were to sell all of his holdings in Exxon, it's still the company where he spent his entire career. And you can bet that it's not going to be that distant from his mind, you know, that what kind of actions he's taking will be good for the American energy sector. Yeah, I mean, even if he doesn't think about it, his mindset is very firmly in Exxon and big oil in the industry. That's right. The major conflict, of course, Kevin, that you've brought up in your piece this week is his relationship with Russia in general and specifically with President Vladimir Putin. Absolutely. The, it's the, the elephant in the room or maybe the bear in the room, as it were. Someone was saying, as his name was floating around the, the rumor mill of the selection process, that, that Rex Tillerson has probably spent more time and has a closer relationship with Vladimir Putin than, than maybe any other American. He cut his management teeth running Exxon's business in the country. He struck up a very sort of close business, but also personal relationship 
not just with Putin, but also with Igor Sechin, his former KGB comrade who runs Russia's biggest oil company, Rosneft. And it, it paid off handsomely for Exxon over the years. In, in 2011, they struck a huge $3.2 billion Arctic exploration deal with Russia. They hit oil a couple years later. He was awarded the one of Russia's highest civilian honors by Putin. And then they had to put the project on ice because of the U.S. sanctions over, over Ukraine and Syria as the sanctions were escalating in 2014. So that is a huge issue. And some people in the confirmation process, Senator Marco Rubio, for example, have already raised concerns about Tillerson's connections with Russia, especially in light of, of all the the apparent machinations and accusations of Russia being involved in hacking the U.S. elections and trying to influence the outcome of, of the election process. It's, it's like pouring kerosene on a fire to nominate someone like Rex Tillerson, e- even if he has some, brings some positives to the job. I mean, it, it is incredible, isn't it, that, uh, that really, I mean, you, you talked earlier about whether uh, or, or about how Donald Trump wanted to, to, to change the way America does all of its uh, dealings with, with the world. But you know, to have someone whose business goals may well so fundamentally disagree with where the country's uh, foreign policy goals are going before the election, it, it's, it's astounding how that conflict seems to exist. That's right. And I mean, as, as the sanctions grip on Russia was tightening in 2014, before Exxon had to, to suspend its cooperation with Rosneft, Tillerson had said in, in the company's annual report that, you know, not speaking specifically about Russia, but about sanctions in general, that they generally don't feel they're very effective. And, you know, if you if you view Exxon as a kind of quasi-nation state, as, as, as one author, Steve Call, who wrote a great book about Exxon, has argued it is, uh, that Exxon, the nation state's interests, at times have been opposed to those of the United States, and, and the sanctions against Russia are a great example. What does that mean for U.S. foreign policy going forward, I think, is an urgent question for the confirmation process. Okay, let's, let's just turn briefly to what happens next for Exxon. Tillerson's been at the helm for what you said, a decade. Mm-hmm. They do appear to have a successor in place. They've not named him officially yet. Tell us a little bit about him and what he will face in the next 12 months or beyond. Right. Well, Tillerson was already on his way out. He's hitting mandatory retirement age in March. He had already anointed an apparent successor, a man named Darren Woods, who used to run Exxon's refining operations and last year was made president of the company, which is the role that Tillerson was put into before he replaced Exxon's last CEO. So it looks like Tillerson will be leaving and and Darren Woods will be be taking over. I think his appointment as Secretary of State, if he gets confirmed, would accelerate the process a little bit, but, but the process was already in motion. And I think Woods, given what we talked about earlier about how Exxon has struggled to grow a bit, its market cap, and there are other companies that are, are really starting to challenge Exxon in areas of the industry where it's typically been dominant. It's by 2018, it may no longer be the world's biggest oil listed oil company. That will be Saudi Aramco, which is, is preparing for an IPO. And, you know, Exxon's worth $380 billion, but Aramco could be worth well over a trillion dollars based on the amount of oil that it has. So Exxon will be knocked from that perch. And Royal Dutch Shell has, has made clear publicly its ambition to overtake Exxon in total shareholder return. And some analysts even think it'll be producing more barrels of oil than Exxon in a couple years' time. So that's the situation that Darren Woods kind of inherits from Tillerson. I've argued it's a sort of weakened empire. He's he's confronting the end of empire here, where Exxon is probably still the strongest, the best-run oil company, but it doesn't quite dominate the industry like it used to. And one thing you mentioned earlier on was 
uh, was climate change and, and, and Exxon's role in it and around it. Um, Tillerson's appointment really does, if we sort of look at Trump's broader cabinet, really does create a little bit of confusion about where Donald Trump is uh, going as regards his thoughts on climate change. He, of course, in the past has called it a Chinese hoax. He seems to be pretty skeptical, even though he has talked to several people about it in the past couple of months, including uh, Bill Gates. Uh, they had a phone call a couple of weeks ago. Tillerson and Exxon, as much as they have stonewalled investors in the past about some information on the effects of climate change on their business, they have come out in favor of both the Paris Agreement last year, which Trump wants to, to get America out of, and they have said, look, we want a carbon price and uh, you know, we, we believe climate change is real. What does Tillerson's appointment tell us, if anything, about where the Trump administration is going on climate, especially considering we've had all these other appointments this week to the Environmental Protection Agency and Department of Energy? I mean, how, how do you read the runes of what's going on here? I think it just muddies the waters further. I mean, as you say, Trump's appointment for EPA is a, is a person who doesn't believe in climate change. Rick Perry at Department of Energy, which was announced officially this morning, he also has said he, he doesn't believe the science behind climate change. But, but Exxon and Rex Tillerson are different. They slowly and subtly over the years have been changing their tune a little bit on climate to the point where at least Exxon acknowledges that climate change is happening. And while I think that, that Rex Tillerson, I've heard him argue in the past at industry conferences and so on, that, that the need to kind of provide energy to the millions or even billions of people around the world who don't have access to reliable energy is a much more urgent need than, than, act to, than to take action on the climate. Exxon has swung around to back both the Paris Climate Agreement and a global carbon price as a way of dealing with the problem of global warming. The message basically being, look, if, we're, if people are going to do something about it, if governments around the world are, are going to do something to try to tackle this problem, then at least do it in a consistent way. And so that's, that's a very subtle kind of position from Exxon, which I still think very much lags the other European oil majors in the degree to which they're willing to talk openly about the risks of climate change and the need to do something about it. They at least believe it exists, which is certainly different than Trump's other cabinet picks and just leads me to question even more what Trump's actual policy on climate will end up being. Mm. So I mean, we've now got to work out how that gets shaped. I mean, we've heard various stories over the past week, not least about how the income administration wants the names of all those that was at Department of Energy who have attended climate conferences or have worked on climate science. I mean, the word witch hunt comes to mind here. And yet uh, there's a, a backlash against the backlash within the Department of Energy. That's right. And, and I think it's, it's a really interesting thing that bears watching because so at the Department of Energy, Reuters had a story yesterday about staffers there declining to go along with the, the Trump transition team's request that they furnish essentially lists of personnel at the Department of Energy who work on climate issues. That's that's a really interesting story. I, I think it's a really big story, actually. Uh, a, a, a cabinet department, a sort of executive branch department, essentially saying, sorry, guys, we're not going to play ball with you. And I'm going to be really interested to see if that happens elsewhere. Will it happen at the EPA, where you've now got a sort of climate denier in charge who I, I would assume wants to shred a lot of the Obama clean air regulations that have, have been designed to to restrain pollution, kind of save lives, because people actually do die from breathing in bad air, but which Trump seems to have argued are, is a jobs killer. So that issue is really interesting. It's, it, it kind of hits on this idea of there being 
beneath the sort of democratically appointed government of the United States, a kind of deep state in which there are career bureaucrats. And the irony of it is that that kind of deep state for years and years has been seen as antithetical to the idea of democracy, but in, in this case, resisting certain parts of the Trump agenda which are more controversial, it might end up being a kind of interesting balancing act in the United States in which in a situation where Trump has the presidency and the Republicans have both houses of Congress and presumably at some point the Supreme Court. So Trump is going to be taking on the bureaucrats. That's right. I, I think at least the DOA story to me seems to suggest that he may be encountering some bureaucratic resistance to his agenda. And, and all you have to do to see how effective that can be is look at things like Obama and Guantanamo, right? He came in saying he wants to close Guantanamo and it's still open as he's leaving office. And, and there's just there, the, the bureaucracy is so big. It is, and especially, especially I think at DOE, which, you know, people seem to, to think that DOE is this agency which has a whole lot of sway over the oil industry and, 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 and so on. But, and I mean, it does control oil, you know, you have to get DOE permission to export crude. But its main mission is a kind of national security mission of safeguarding America's nuclear weapons. And so trying to kind of mess around with the DOE's mission, the mission of the bureaucrats there, is in a way kind of trying to mess around with the national security establishment, especially to the degree that that national security establishment might perceive climate change as a, as a kind of existential threat to the United States. Okay, Kevin, uh, thanks very much for coming on and sharing those thoughts. We're very sad to see you go. This will not be quite your last appearance. You're giving us a cameo on our predictions special in a couple of weeks. And we may drag you back in. Always, absolutely. <laughs> so, Kevin, you will be missed, and thanks again for your, all your help. You haven't heard the last from me, guys. <laughs> all right. Cheers, Kevin. Cheers. All right, now we're going to turn to a tale of two banks. Goldman Sachs' new management team as the number two executive in charge has departed for the Trump administration. And then we're going to talk about Wells Fargo and how its hubris over legislation is basically coming to bite its CEO and the B-U-T-T. <laughs> okay. All right. So, um, Anthony, let's talk about Goldman Sachs, the number two, uh, Gary Cohn, is now basically, it's been confirmed, he's going to the Trump administration. There's been tons of rumors about mm -hmm. that. And it renews talk about Lloyd Blankfein and his role as CEO and succession plans going forward. So a couple of things happened, including the appointment of a new CFO, but there were other executive appointments where it's basically seems to be status quo. Yeah, actually, it's, it's a bit more than that. I mean, in, in some respects, the people who are taking over from Gary Cohn were completely expected. So what Goldman has done is what it often does in this situation. It's replaced one person with two. And this is what happened actually when Gary Cohn was the president. Initially, he was president with John Winkleried until he left, leaving Cohn and Blankfein basically running the firm almost as, as co-CEOs or maybe as chairman and CEO. They would sign shareholder letters together each year. They would have both their names would be on memos to start. Always, a, ba always it, a bad idea. Usually a bad idea. In this case, I mean, they've been friends for many years. I think the one issue here was that, um, I mean, Blank uh, Fan has now been in charge for a decade. Uh, and at some point you'd expect him to go. Well, a year ago, uh, he got a bout of cancer. Uh, and when he came back, he actually came back, as some do, uh, including Jamie Dimon and JP Morgan, much more invigorated, wanting to stay on. And when Michael Sherwood, who was one of the top guys in Europe, decided to resign a couple of months ago, he said to one of the reporters, 
said, you know, it's it's not even really about whether um, Lloyd's going or not. But frankly, what he said is he's not staying for a year. He wants to stay for another five years. So really, the top job isn't going anywhere anytime soon unless there's some kind of calamity. So Gary Cohn, who's long said, yes, he wouldn't mind having the job, has decided for some reason, I don't understand, being you know just a, a pure minion, he's decided as a Democrat, I think, to go and work for the Trump administration. Donald Trump, of course, spending a great deal of the campaign knocking Goldman Sachs, pitching it in as being in some kind of global financial markets conspiracy along with his rival Hillary Clinton. Cohn clearly sees patriotic duty trumping all of that, if I may put it that way. Um, the guys taking over from him are two of the most senior people in the banking you'd expect to take over. So, so you've got David Solomon, who's head of M&A, uh, is a co-president and co-COO, and joining him is the current CFO, finance chief, Harvey Schwartz, who used to run the firm's trading division. And that's basically how Goldman has always done things. It's either, either there's a trader or an M&A guy running the firm or one from each department in the running to run the firm. Okay, so so something that's interesting here. So so Blankfein basically went to the mold to kind of pluck the, you know, the, the two new executives mm. that you're talking about. But he seemed to be thinking outside the box uh, when he decided to elevate the new CFO, Martin Chavez. He seems yeah, to be an exactly. interesting pick. Yeah, he, he actually, Martin Chavez has has been getting a great deal of, of airtime in the past year or two. Goldman's really been, in a media sense, promoting him. Now they promoted him to finance chief. Um, he started at J. Aaron, which was the, the uh, commodities trading division where uh, Harvey Schwartz started, Gary Cohn started, Lloyd Blankfein started. But he was more of a strategist than a natural trader. But he then became a big technology buff and, and actually um, went off and set up his own firm. Uh, which he then sold, and then he came back to Goldman. And for the past few years, he's been running the technology division, which is not a division that generally tends to make money. You think of them as you know the, the help desk people or the guys who make sure your trading operations work properly. But actually, he developed a, a tool which, A, helps put some traders out of business, but B, also allows Goldman, if they want to, to hand over certain parts of, of their trading software to clients. It's almost like saying, look, Open architecture is the way forward, which is a very Silicon Valley way of thinking. Think, you know, Tesla saying, "Our patents, you can, you can have them. Go forth, uh, and and uh, and tradeify." Um, so, in that sense, it's a very interesting move. You've seen well uh, other banks on Wall Street, like J.P. Morgan, try and claim that they're technology firms, and I've always laughed at it because, you know, banks need technology. They use technology, and they even build technology. Uh, but they use it for the purpose of taking and helping others take financial risk. Um, so they're not, it's not as if they have the margins, and especially not the returns, of Silicon Valley uh, tech firms. In this one instance, though, I still wouldn't go that far, but I think having someone who knows technology getting that high in the firm, and the CFO, as we've seen with Schwartz, can be a stepping stone to a higher position in the firm. It does kind of show Goldman's stating intent of where they think, in general, the firm is going over the next few years. Okay, so that's a great segue to talk about Wells Fargo, which has been troubled lately, a little um, bit. and its new CEO Tim Sloan um, hasn't been in the been in the job that that long, right? Couple of months. Couple yeah. of months in the job, he's basically now railing against all sorts of regulation quite loudly, right? Yeah, yeah. exactly. Now, uh, last week we had the first industry conference for banks for the CEOs to convene since the election. Of course, the election has changed everything. Bankers really over the past six months to a year had mostly given up on the idea of doing of getting too many changes to the Dodd-Frank uh, Act, which uh, brought in a bunch of regulation after the big financial crisis. 
Trump is against a lot of the regulations, though mostly for smaller banks, not so much the big banks, but a lot of his picks have talked, uh, cabinet secretaries have talked about getting rid of financial regulation or changing it, and so have people in Congress. So suddenly, last week at the conference, you get a bunch of them, Jamie Dimon, Brian Moynihan at B of A and others, talking about how regulation's kind of irritating them, but they don't go too far. Then in comes Tim Sloan, and he gives, at the end, a laundry list of four or five things that he really like to see gone. So there's too much capital liquidity. There's too much this. There's too much that. The Volcker rule's too expensive uh, to, to, to put in place uh, and monitor. Uh, and then he said at the end, and I could go on for an hour. Now, normally, you only do that if you feel particularly confident about where your bank is going. And Wells Fargo, of course, is in the middle of a huge scandal involving its bankers over the past five years, at least creating two million or more fake bank and checking accounts. And earlier this week, we heard that Prudential Insurance is, is going to stop selling a particular insurance product through Wells Fargo for fear that maybe there may have been mis-selling there. Maybe. I'm not saying there is. They're just looking into it. And then yesterday, we get the Federal Reserve <laughs> and the FDIC saying, OK, we've got these five banks at the beginning of the year or earlier this year failed their so-called living wills. This is um, a part of the Dodd-Frank regulations where banks are meant to work out how, to, what, how they should be wound down in the event of a calamitous financial crisis. Wells Fargo used to be the best of the bunch two years ago, the only one that got anywhere near a passing grade. Didn't get a passing grade, but it's got anyone near it. Now it's the only one getting failed. (laughs) (laughs) What? (laughs) (laughs) So basically, the bank that probably needs the regulation at this time the most is the one railing up against it. Well, yeah, I mean, look, um, they've always been against regulation. Don't forget... uh, um, Dick Kovacevic, who ran the firm for years, was the one CEO who, at the big meeting with President Bush in 2008, where they were told, you must sign this and take on uh, 25 billion or 10 to 25 billion in aid to help us through the financial crisis, said, why should I do that? It's ridiculous. I don't need the money. All the other bankers said, OK, we'll do it. We'll, we'll tow the, 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 the country line. So Wells Fargo has always been a bit of an outlier in so many ways. And so it's no real surprise, I suppose, they're doing it again. Uh, but you know, Tim Sloan's been on the job for two months. He's already, he surely has seen what's happened with you know, the likes of Jamie Dimon in the past, who would rail against regulations and the cost of regulations. And often, these guys do have a point. You know, if you put out a thousand, two thousand page document on regulation, some of them will need tweaking and fine tuning at some point. But you know, Jamie Dimon says all this stuff against regulation. Then 2012, the bank loses six billion dollars on dodgy trades, and he goes silent for a while. He's not stupid. <laughs> Um, and even now, look, he may well be railing against them in private, Jamie Dimon. What, what do we know? But at least in public, he's not saying daft <laughs> things. Tim Sloan, look, uh, it's not going to be the end of Tim Sloan. It's not the biggest problem in the world. They fail the living will. They've got time to fix it. But yeah, look, if, if, you, if you as a bank want or as a banking industry want to have someone who is pushing the agenda uh, for regulatory change at a time when regulatory change is becoming more amenable, or at least um, Congress is becoming more amenable to it, then maybe you want someone who's not such a lightning rod for all the bad things going on in the industry at the moment. <laughs> okay. All right. Well, uh, Anthony, I have to agree. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Your bonus is assured. <laughs> thank you. All right. Well, thanks for that. I also want to thank Kevin again and Bon Voyage. And also, this is a reminder that we're going to be off next week, but we will be back the week before New Year's with the Views Room special on our predictions that we are putting out for next year. And on that note, I'd just like to invite you all to go to our website, breakingviews.com, and if you're in the area, sign up for one of our predictions events we're having in our offices around the world the week of January 9th. Those will be in Singapore, 
Paris, New York, London and Hong Kong. We'll have a, a great list of panelists from the industry to talk with some of our editors about what's going to be up for the year ahead in finance and beyond. So please do join us for that. So allow me just to wish you all a happy holidays, happy Christmas, happy Hanukkah, happy Festivus. Whatever you're celebrating, enjoy it and we'll see you back here just before New Year. Thank you for listening to this week's episode. The Views Room was created by Ren Holding. It's hosted by me, Anthony Curry, and my colleague, Jennifer Sabre, and is produced each week by Andrew D'Antonio and Bethel Habti. If you haven't already, please do subscribe to us in iTunes. While you're there, do rate us and leave us a review. As always, you can read our work every day on breakingviews.com. Thanks for joining us.